Good morning. Good morning. I hope you're doing well, at least better than I am at the moment. I feel pretty rough, uh, but we do have a good story to get our teeth into today. So um, 1 Kings chapter 3. It's quite a, a famous story, a story about God asking Solomon, if you could have one thing in all the world, what would it be? I wonder how you would answer that question. Imagine yourself, you're digging in the garden one day, you come across a door, a kind of sunken door, and you dig down deep and you're curious and you eventually manage to prise this ancient door open and you find a tunnel. And the tunnel reaches down and down into the depths of the earth, into a cavern full of glittering treasures. And one thing catches your eye in particular. It's a little lamp right in the middle of the pile of treasure. It's a little bit dusty, a bit grimy from the years it's been spending there. So you rub it clean and out pops a blue genie. And you've heard this story before. It's a kind of a fun one. And it says, oh, master, you freed me from thousands of years of being cooped up in that tiny, tiny lamp. What can I do for you? Let me grant you three wishes. I wonder how you would choose those three wishes. But if he said just one, one thing that you might have, in all the world, what would it be? Would it be riches and great wealth? Would it be honour and glory and success in your career? Would it be long life? Would it be peace and happiness and love in your family? I wonder what is the thing that's your heart's desire, your, the deepest thing, if you could have it, what would it be? Well, let's read 1 Kings chapter 3 and see what Solomon chooses. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Solomon's about 20 years old. Um, he's risen to the throne, and now he's, he's kind of confirming his position. He's got rid of some of his uh, enemies, people who've done really rotten things in the past. His position is more and more secure, and now he's making alliances with people around him. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? The jury's out for the moment. He brought her to the city of David until he'd finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Solomon's a great and famous builder, and we'll get to that next week and look at some of the things that he builds. Really significant things in the, in the history of the Bible. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places up on the hilltops because the temple had not been built yet for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Jury's out. We're not quite sure just yet. We'll see as the story goes on. But Solomon does love the Lord. That's a good thing anyway. So the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. That's the place where they had the, uh, the temple. Not the temple, uh, the tabernacle from kind of back in Exodus history. They'd uh, eventually parked it there at Gibeon. It became a really important place to go and worship. And there Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. A thousand offerings. There's a real commitment to God. This is a somebody whose heart is with God, who wants to follow him. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. What would you ask for? Solomon answered, you've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. Now look out for the heart. Okay? It comes up a few times. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? 
Solomon asks for wisdom. Solomon asks to be able to do what a king should do. To be able to do what, did you hear any echoes of it? What Adam was made to do. Um, Adam and Eve were kept from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think in time they would have been given access to that tree, but God asked them to trust him and they failed that test of trust and took that knowledge for themselves. But here, Solomon's being like a new Adam and he's asking for something that God wants to give to him. Asking for wisdom, the wisdom to be a king. I wonder if you've ever thought about this, but Adam was a king. Adam was a king who had responsibility over that garden and over the world. Responsibility to make judgments, to decide where things should go, to order things so that life would flourish. That's what Adam's job was. That's what a kingly job is, to do justice, to bring order, to beat back darkness so that light can shine out, to root up chaos so that life and good can grow. That's what Adam's job was. That's what the king's job was. That's what Solomon sees his job is. He says, David has done a good job of that because his heart was with you. Now give me a heart that knows what to do. Give me wisdom. And what does the Lord say in return? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice. That's the king's job. You've asked to be able to do it well. I'll do what you've asked. He says yes to the request. I'll give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be, and there will, there, there will never have been anyone like you, nor ever, ever will be. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for, both wealth and honour, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realised it had been a dream. That's not that it was not real. It's what often happens to kings or people in authority. Prophets get the visions. Kings and people like Joseph get dreams. And God comes and teaches them things or shows them things. And and gives Solomon a gift in this case. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. And Solomon uh, becomes the wise king, the king who knows how to run his kingdom, the king who's like a new Adam in the land, in the garden of Israel, who's pushing back the frontiers of darkness to be able to, to dwell in a land that's flowing with milk and honey, where the people are like the sand on the seashore, where there's peace, where there's happiness, where there's feasting, where there's rejoicing. And actually, that's what the whole of the next chapter is about. Chapter four, verse 20. Uh, the beginning of that, that chapter is a kind of a big, long list of lots of uh, wonderful people who end up working for Solomon and making his country the great country that it was. And then verse 20, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. And then skip down to verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the peoples of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. And it names a few famously wise people in ancient days and Solomon was even wiser than them. And then verse 32, he spoke 3,000 proverbs. You can read some of them in the book of Proverbs. And his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish, and from all nations. People came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, 
sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Can you see the hope of wisdom? The hope of wisdom is life. How, how about you define wisdom? Well, wisdom is different from knowledge, isn't it? It's not just knowing stuff about birds of the air and fish of the sea and plants of the field and the walls and those kind of things, but it's knowing how to put that knowledge into action. Knowledge of the world, knowledge of how life goes, it's able to, it's the, the ability to put it into action for the purpose of human flourishing, the flourishing of life. Somebody put it like this, that wisdom is competence with regard to life's realities, cutting with the grain of the way this world is made. So Brian O'Driscoll's famous phrase, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. And if you're in my house, not to bring tomatoes anywhere near my plate. I, I'm not a big fan of tomatoes at all. Tomato sauce, tomato ketchup, tomato on pizza, that kind of thing is fine. But to be honest, we don't want tomatoes anywhere near. <laughs> um, anywhere near to fruit salads anyway. That's wisdom, right? It's not just knowing stuff. It's knowing how to put it into action in a way that's good for others. And that's what Solomon does. And there's great hope in his wisdom, isn't there? He's, he's a really good king. He's somebody who does what Adam couldn't do. Asks for what God wants to give him rather than grabbing it for himself. There's lots of Adam-y references here, like the birds and the plants and the fields and um, all the nations coming to him. Solomon becomes a new Adam, like a new king. And there's a lot of hope in his reign. He even goes to sleep and wakes up with a woman. I don't know if you know that story about Adam. Adam's alone. He's the first of God's, um, the first human to be made. God makes him out of the dust and breathes his spiritual life into his nostrils. And he becomes a living soul, a living being. But it's not good that he's alone and he can't do his job alone. And so God puts him to sleep and makes from his side a woman who's like him, but unlike him at the same time. And together in a partnership, they work together to make the world a beautiful place, or at least they should have done. That's what the plan was. And Solomon here goes to sleep, a deep sleep. And when he wakes up, and Peter Lightheart in his brilliant commentary says this great phrase, Solomon falls into a deep sleep and wakes up in the presence of Lady Wisdom. If you read some of those proverbs, many of them written by King Solomon, just a little bit further on in the Bible, wisdom is personified as a woman. And so Solomon goes to sleep as a young man on his own, unable to do this job, intimidated by the work that he has to do as the king over this great nation, and wakes up with wisdom, wakes up with a woman who's able to help him. Lady Wisdom is there, and so this is what Solomon writes. Let me read it to you. Beginning of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, which is something that he did, wasn't it? He asked for that. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He holds success in store for the upright. He's a shield to those whose way of life is blameless. For he guards the course of the just and protects the way of his faithful ones. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. Out in the open, wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out and says, do you want me? Do you want wisdom? Well, that's the thing that Solomon wants most of all. That's how he answers the question. What do you want? I want wisdom. 
I want to be able to live in this world in a way that brings life to others. That's what wisdom is all about. Competence with regard to the realities of life. Cutting with the grain so I can bring life in, in my own existence and life to others. And that's what Solomon does, isn't it? His wisdom carries great hope. But with it, in this story, there also seem to be seeds of Solomon's destruction and of the kingdom's destruction later on. <clears throat> we can't tell that story right now, but Solomon takes an Egyptian wife and the jury's out. Could that be a good thing that he's blessing the nations like God said he would through Abraham? But we're not so sure. It turns pretty sour later on. Um, Solomon has plenty of horses and feasts and takes great tributes from lots of people. And that seems like a wonderful thing, but, but eventually it puts a great burden on the people. And a few generations later, they really struggle with that burden. Right in the middle of chapter four, the bit that we didn't read in that long list of people who serve Solomon, there's a man called Adoniram, son of Abda, who's in charge of forced labor. What is Solomon doing with a guy who's ruling with forced labor, building with slave labor. That's, that's what the people of Israel were freed from in Egypt. So why is he getting back towards Egypt to make alliances? Why is he looking more and more like a pharaoh with all these horses and chariots? Why has he got slaves building his buildings when there's a, a nation full of people whose hearts are full, whose stomachs are full, who are free and at peace and love their king? What's going on? There's little seeds, little hints here that though there's great hope in Solomon's wisdom, he's going to go the same way as Adam. And I don't want to spoil the story for you because there's many happy years left in Solomon's reign. There's some wonderful things that he does and he really was a great man in history. We can learn many things from his proverbs, from his wisdom, but the hope of Solomon's wisdom goes the way of Adam. That a king who's a human like you and me However good we are at running the places that God has given us to run, however much we try to cut with the grain of this universe, things are going to go wrong in the end. We need to look for something more than just how to have a good life now. This is a prophetic book, One Kings. It's not just a history book telling us some interesting stories that you can learn practical things from. Um, the Hebrews in the Hebrew Bible count it as prophecy. Not as history, as we often think of it, but as prophecy. And prophecy, well, why is it a book of prophecy? Because it's about prophets. We'll meet a lot of them as we go. Um, but it's also prophetic. It speaks into our lives the words of God. So what is God saying to us today? I think he's saying more than try and be a smart and wise and clever person like Solomon. Try and live a good life and bring life to others. He doesn't just want to give us hope if we're wise. He wants to show us the heart of wisdom, and we'll spot that in this next story. A bit of a strange story, a bit of a, a gruesome story, um, but let me read it to you. This is an example of Solomon's wisdom, and in this story, we uncover the heart of wisdom. Now, which is from chapter three, verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, pardon me, my lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by my breast and put her dead son by... Sorry, she put him by, by her breast and put her dead son by my breast. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had borne. The other woman said, no! 
The living one is my son, the dead one is yours. The first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. Well, that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. And there's a knot, and there's a riddle. There's a decision to be made to discern good and evil. Who's in the right and who's in the wrong? And there's two women in very similar situations. Both say one thing about the other. And this one says the same thing about the other. And it's a knot of words. And, and they're, um, they're really difficult to work out, aren't they? This one says, my son is alive and your son is dead. The other one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. And how on earth are you supposed to judge between the two? How on earth do you do that? Well, you do it like this. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. And he then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave this ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe. They held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Uh, it's a bit of a hard story, isn't it? The king's about to murder a baby. What on earth is going on there? Well, I think we don't need to be distracted or worry too much about that. The, the sword is a prop. Solomon's not actually about to slice a baby in half. He hangs the sword over the baby to show people's hearts, right? To cut open that knot, to reveal the hearts of these two women. The words are going back and forth, echoing each other. They're tying in circles, tying in knots. And the king is thinking, what earth am I going to do? And then he does something wonderfully wise and opens their hearts and shows which one is really the mother, shows which one has compassion and which one is full of jealousy and anger and bitterness. And then he's able to see, to lay bare the secrets of the hearts of people and to do wisdom. And everybody, of course, they are they're in awe. He's a genius. It's an extremely clever thing to do. It's amazing. So what's the heart of wisdom? Well, we're running out of time. I want to finish soon. What's the heart of wisdom? Well, the heart of wisdom, um, you see it in the woman who's the real mother. And you see it in Solomon. Actually, we've seen it already. What does Solomon do when God asks him? What do you want? Solomon goes to God and he says, please help me. Solomon loves God. Solomon gives God a great big sacrifice and there's seeds of little wrinkles and sins in his life. But he goes to God and God is the center of his life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We read that in Proverbs not long ago. That's what Solomon learned, that if you have God in the center of your life and give up everything else, you'll get it back again and you'll know how to live in this world. Whereas if you have something that isn't God in the center of your life, if you have money, or in the case of, of, um, of the, the other woman in this, if you have motherhood at the center of your life, or if you have your career at the center of your life, or you have world peace at the center of your life, or you have long life at the center of what makes you tick, all those things will let you down and disappoint you. They'll lead you to folly. If money is the thing that you love most of all, well, it'll lead you when you have a choice to make between two jobs and you need wisdom to do that, you'll always be following the money. And you'll always be following the money when you're presented with a fork in the road where one is a little bit of a dodgy option and the other is a righteous option where one gets you more money and the other gets you less. If money's all that you want, then money will be your wisdom and it'll lead you, it'll lead you to fraud, 
to dishonesty, to cheating others, and it'll actually destroy you in the end. It'll, it'll probably lose you all your money. Do you see? Or motherhood, that's what this woman is struggling with, that it seems for her, being a mum is everything that she wants to be. And so when she loses her baby, it's not just a tragedy, it's not just the grief that she brings to the king and brings before God and tries to work through, but it's, it's a cause of such jealousy and bitterness that she wants to strip everyone else of their motherhood. That when there's an opportunity, she takes this other mum's baby and leaves her with a dead one. What a horrible thing to do. And then the, this, the king hangs a sword over this other baby and she says, yes, if I can't be a mother, nobody can. You see that idolatry, that looking to motherhood, to this thing that rules her life. It's ruining her life and it's ruining everybody else's life. Do you see that? That if money is your wisdom, if motherhood is your wisdom, if life, if anything in this world is the centre of your universe, it'll suck the life out of you and bring you to folly and it'll destroy you in the end. What's the heart of wisdom? The heart of wisdom is knowing God. The heart of wisdom is knowing that we, when we come to the, the story of Solomon, we don't just look back to Adam, but we look forward to Jesus. We look forward to the one who acted a lot like the, the good woman in this story, who says, give him up. Don't cut him into tear me apart instead. I'd rather give up my son than see him die. That's what Jesus does for us on the cross, isn't it? He says, tear me apart, but forgive them. I'd rather give up my own life so I can give my life to them. It's what Solomon does here in taking these dubious women into the court of the king and risking, risking people thinking that he's a bit of a dodgy character having these people in his presence, but, but he wants to help the small people, the little people. And so he does help them. And in the end, the people hold him an even higher and greater honor. You see, Solomon's a picture of it, that he gives himself to God and puts God at the center of his life. Jesus is the one that Solomon points towards. So I wonder if he's the center of your life. He's the one who says, come and put my yoke upon me. He's the one who is wisdom. He's the one who promises us rest. He's the one who, who helps us when life doesn't go well, when we make a real mess like Adam did, when we make a real mess like Solomon will later on in the story, when we make a real mess of things, when we know what we should do and we, we mess it up anyway. God is the one, Jesus is the one who comes close to us and says, let me give you rest. Put me at the center of your life and I'll teach you wisdom teach you how to have life in the midst of this dark world. That's the heart of wisdom, not just to try and be good at life and sort things out so things go well, but to put Jesus at the center of our life. So that even when things are disastrously bad, even when we lose out on everything else that we thought we wanted, even when we have to give it up, like this woman had to give up her son, we'll really have everything. We'll have Jesus, the watertight, reliable, wonderful savior. That's who he is. That's the heart of wisdom, to know him and have him most of all, to give up your life to follow him, that you might receive your life in knowing him. That's the heart of wisdom. That's the lesson that, um, that we learn from Solomon. If you put things in this world in the center of your life, they'll lead you astray and suck the life out of you. But put God in the middle. Ask him for wisdom for all that you need for life. He'll give you himself and then you'll really have everything.